0: Hi, this is Professor of Photography, Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number nine of History of Photography. This class session deals with one of the most interesting characters in the history of the medium of photography, and that is Alfred Stieglitz. Stieglitz, a photographer, an impresario, a a gallerist, a, a publisher, changed the face of photography at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. Here we are joining our class in progress. Our subject for tonight is this guy, Alfred Stieglitz. Stieglitz, who uh, in many ways, almost single-handedly, although not really single-handedly, but almost single-handedly, changed the face of photography in the late 19th, but more importantly, the early 20th century. So here is a portrait of Alfred Stieglitz. And uh, there's a story that I always like to lead off this class session with about Stieglitz, uh, where Stieglitz, who's in his gallery in New York City, which is where this photograph was made as well. Stieglitz is in his gallery in New York City, and he's, uh, he's you know kind of walking through the room. And there's a woman standing looking at paintings by an artist named John Merritt. So this woman's standing and looking at these paintings. And as Stieglitz comes through the room, she looks at Stieglitz and says, excuse me, can somebody here explain these paintings to me? Can somebody explain why they arouse no emotion in me, why I find them to be dry and uninteresting and soulless? And Stieglitz kind of gives her a look up and down and says, can you tell me this? Why don't you give me an erection? <laughs> he turns and walks into the back room. And I love, to lead this, I love to lead off this class session with that story simply because it kind of gives you an idea of the sort of guy that this guy was. Um, he was uh, an, a character in every sense of the word, but a character whose influence was tremendously far-reaching. Uh, he was a curmudgeon. He was an artist. He was a tastemaker. Um, as we'll see this evening especially, he frequently spoke out of both sides of his mouth and frequently had a hard time kind of reconciling which side of his mouth was the one he wanted to speak the truth from today. Uh, but uh, uh, the other issue is that, in the, as in the aforementioned example, there's no accounting for taste, but Stieglitz knew what he liked. He knew what he liked, and that was an important component to what we'll talk about this evening. So. We have to back up a little bit to kind of understand how Stieglitz fits into the picture here. And it won't be just Stieglitz. It'll be other photographers too. But you'll kind of get the idea here. So uh, so there was this movement that we've talked about a couple of different times in a couple of different ways of pictorialism, which was an attempt to make photographs that looked like art with a capital A. There was this sort of desire. To somehow figure out a way to have photography be an art form because it was suspected as, as being something that wasn't quite artistic so this all happened right about the middle of the 19th century as the novelty of photography was sort of wearing off and photographers had this desire to be taken seriously as artists and uh, they began Uh, copying styles of other forms of art in order to make their photographs look more like what people thought art should look like. And in this movement that became known as pictorialism, the finished picture, the sort of product, was considered the most important piece. And the subject was considered much less important, of much lesser sort of value the subject wasn't really considered to be the most important thing. And because this finished picture was the most important thing, manipulation of that finished picture was very common to achieve the effect of making the picture look like some sort of art. So when we get to something like this, which we have looked at before, Gustave Le Grey's The Great Wave, and we remember that this is a combination print with one negative for the bottom sort of two-thirds or so of the picture, and uh, one negative for the top one-third or the sky, we begin recognizing that photography is something different from what at least its early practitioners might have imagined. Because remember that their idea was that this was a way to capture from nature. But what what is happening here in 1865 with Le Gray is that we're getting something that is synthetic, manipulated to be something else this scene never really existed that way the gray puts together clouds from one place the water from another place and makes something synthetic and we've seen some other examples of this ray lander's the two ways of life another image by him called hard times which sort of shows the sleepless guy you know sort of imagining what the problems of his family are and so forth and so on uh, so these kinds of ph- photographs began to be known as art photography So we've got champions of this cause, like Robinson and Ray Lander. And we've got some other folks, uh, like uh, Mortensen and Le who are trying in some way to make these photographic images look like drawings. Thank you very much. To make them look like drawings or some other kind of art form. So their goal is not necessarily to replicate the world exactly but rather to kind of replicate a style of art. There were some problems, though, uh, because this idea of art photography was kind of like languishing. It wasn't really going anywhere. People were sort of looking at it and thinking, well, this is beautiful, but now what? Now that we've figured out how to use gum by chromate uh, to make a picture look like it was painted or drawn, uh, how to use uh, you know, etching, photo etching processes to make the picture look more like an engraving. How do we go about making it look like something that we really care about? So uh, the other problem was that the subject matter that people were photographing wasn't terribly interesting. Because they were so much more interested in making the picture look pretty, like art, their interest in subject matter kind of tailed off a little bit. Confounding the problem was this amateurism amateurism now amateurism is sort of funny because it's a word that we have to think about in a different way as 21st centurions because the 19th century person wouldn't have thought about it the same way we think about it you know if I were to you know to to say to a student in one of my classes well that is a true amateur photograph they'd probably go away crying. Because our objective, of course, is to teach you how to make professional quality photographs, right? But in the 19th century, if I said, you know, that's a real amateur effort, somebody would say, why, thank you. They'd say thank you because they would understand the Latin root of the word amateur, which is amor, amas, amat, to love. An amateur is someone who does something for the love of it. And as photography began to become something that was accessible to more people, first with dry glass plates in uh, the 1870s and, and, and 1880s, and then George Eastman's roll film in the late 1880s and 1888, we began to get more and more amateur photographers. Now, it's important for us to remember that those photographers that we've looked at, like like the Moybridges and the Watkins and those kinds of guys who went out into the American West and traveled around the world and made photographs of distant places. These folks are professionals. They're trying to make a living by making photographs that they can sell. Photographers making a a picture of the cliff over the Mississippi River in Wisconsin or are a member of one of these camera clubs is a completely different kind of an idea. Completely different kind of an idea. These people are not trying to make a living in photography they're already making a living doing something else you know they're postmen and doctors and lawyers and store owners and you know carpenters and so forth and so on who have an interest in photography and because the equipment and materials uh, have become so much more accessible they begin to make photographs for themselves so here we have this uh, camera club I always like this one I think we've talked about this one before you know with the rank-and-file members wearing the bowler hats and the, the uh, you know, sort of newbies wearing this sort of little silly pork pie hat, but the president of the club wearing that cool hat. You know, cool hat. So he gets to wear the cool hat. So amateur photographers become an important force in the media. And what was really interesting about amateur photographers is what they took pictures of. They took pictures of subject matter that they cared about. Because amateur photographers recognized that photographs had some more value when they took a picture of their children, or when they took a picture of their home, or when they took a picture around their own town. And those kinds of pictures for them had a great deal more value. Their interest in subject matter becomes a big part of what it is that they're interested in. I'm sorry. You just recited my photography in the newspaper. Like Rock on. Exactly I right. haven't read it yet. so I, That is so weird. <laughs> I saw I your face I saw your face when I said that. And I was like, I wonder what it is. Yeah. So I was just about to ask you. So. Photography is an art and photography is a passion. It's, it's so, you just recited my for so I hope I get an A. Cool. Sorry. I hope okay, I get yeah. an A. Did you just say, I hope I get an A? Yeah. <laughs> you should say, I should get an A. That's really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you should yeah. say, I should get an A for Can you guys see the projector that, sitting in that row? I was wondering about that. Can you, can you see the screen oh, from behind yeah, the, right the picture? It goes right Okay, cool. So so this is cool. So that's great. Sorry. So here no, that's all right. I'm I'm happy to hear that. So these folks are taking pictures of things that they have some fascination with. So the subject matter trumps the way the picture looks. So this is another kind of piece of the puzzle. There's another piece of the puzzle, and that is that as photography becomes more accessible, more people use it for more different reasons. I've just included here some examples of uh, some anthropologists who are using photographs to help them with their study of another culture. So here there's you know a set of measurements going on that shows the body type of that culture. Here is another photograph that's showing some social customs of that culture. So There's this other part of the puzzle which suggests that photography isn't just for commerce, and also isn't just for personal enjoyment, that there's something else going on with photography. It can be put to other uses. So all of this stuff kind of comes together with this guy that we've talked about a little bit before, Peter Henry Emerson. Peter Henry Emerson uh, was a photographer himself but also a guy who was sort of interested in pushing forward an agenda for how photography could progress. So Emerson uh, spoke out uh, about the art photography trend. He didn't like it. He wasn't terribly crazy about it. Is the Emerson related to uh, Waldo Emerson? No. Oh. No, this guy, this, this Emerson is uh, British. And Ralph Waldo Emerson is American. So, good question, though. Could could happen, right? I suppose, you know. Emerson. Emerson, yeah. Mm-hmm. It could also be related to, let's try this, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. <laughs> you, you know, like, you never know whether that'll resonate with anyone, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. ELP fans, in, see? Was. One and a half. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just resonate with that in our own little age group, and we'll be happy. OK. So uh, so this Emerson character, he wrote a book, really a pamphlet. It wasn't really a book. It wasn't like a big, giant tome or anything. It's this little booklet. And in this book, he's, he wrote uh, uh, that he called naturalistic photography for students of the art. And so in this book, he advocated a certain set of objectives that he thought photographers should pursue. And he exemplified those objectives by, a group, by making a group of photographs. Uh, and the most notable of that group of photographs was a, a small project that he created called Life on the Norfolk Broads. The Norfolk Broads is a kind of a, uh, an area in England uh, that uh, is sort of just, I, I suppose, just a bit south of Scotland. And uh, it, it's kind of marshy and low-lying. And uh, at this particular time in the 19th century, people lived there, very close to the land. They farmed, they hunted, they fished, they gathered reeds and made baskets. They were kind of you know, a real honest living people, at a time when so much of society was becoming involved in industrial kinds of things. So, uh, so Life on the Norfolk Broads, a set of pictures that depicted real people doing real things in their real lives. So in his book, uh, he, uh, he done a, did a bunch of things uh, that are that, talked about a bunch of things. Uh, the title page of his book, the very first page, included an excerpt from John Keats' poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn. Ode to a Grecian Urn, which all of you have read somewhere probably way back in the background of your, of your you know, long-ago part of your education. But you'll recognize it uh... in this one little nugget that is the, right at the beginning of of his book beauty is truth truth beauty that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know truth and beauty so he's advocating that this whole synthetic idea of photography and trying to make photography look like some other art form is balderdash and that it shouldn't be done instead he says truth is the beauty in truth, we will find beauty. So uh, this this book uh, suggested a bunch of things about process. um, And some of the processes that he felt were realistic, uh, as opposed to painterly, were a pair of processes called platinum and photogravure. In in the textbook, you'll find some great little nuggets about those things with uh, uh, little bits and pieces in there about both of those processes. We've talked a little bit about platinum in the past. Platinum, a process that substitutes platinum metal for silver. And photogravure, which is an ink-based process, but a photo etching, or photo engraving process. And both of these allowed for long, smooth tonal scales and very, very beautiful objects as prints, but reproduced generally every nuance of the photographic negative. The platinum process had been invented in England by William Willis in 1873. And it was based on the property of iron salts to reduce to an iron state when they were in the presence of platinum salts. Uh, And Emerson wrote about this process. He loved it so much. In his book, he says, for low-toned effects and for gray day landscapes, the platinotype process, that's what it was called. Uh, when you talked about it as a printmaking process, the platinotype process is unequaled. Every photographer who has the good and advancement of photography at heart should feel indebted to Mr. Willis for placing in his power a process by which he is capable, uh, to, he's able to produce work that is comparable on artistic grounds to any other black and white process. Well, black and white process, we have to kind of take ourselves a little bit out of the photo world and suggest that what he's saying is that. He's saying that this process of platinum is capable of the long, smooth, tonal tonal scale that lithographs were capable of, that etchings were capable of, that pencil drawings were capable of. In other words, a a nuance of tone. Uh, He says, no artist could rest content to practice photography as an art so long as such inartistic printing processes as pre-platinotype processes were in vogue. If the photo etching process, that's photo gravure, and the platinotype process were to become lost arts, we, for our part, would never take another photograph. So uh, and again, the, the, there are some great descriptions in the textbook about platinum and gravure, if you wanted to kind of get a sense of those things. So uh, he also advocated something else in his book. Uh, and that was that he felt that human vision, was much sharper than photographic vision was. It's kind of a weird thing. And there's possibly, uh, you know, I kind of think of a couple of different ways that I could imagine what this might mean. So on one level, I think about, you know, what happens when I take a photograph and then make a print that's eight by ten inches of a photograph of, I don't know, you know, the uh, the edge of a forest preserve. Lots of trees. You know, lots of things going on. In that 8 by 10 print, there is a sort of perfection of the way the image is sharply focused that I wouldn't necessarily see if I kind of stood there and scanned the scene. The other thing that I sometimes wonder is if Emerson was a little nearsighted. When he looked at the photograph up close, it was nice and sharp. When he looked at the landscape far away, it was a little fuzzy. But he generally is saying that our human eyes are not as sharply focused as the camera lens is, and he said, that what you really ought to do when you're making photographs, the ideal thing is to use a lens that is a soft focus lens. That would be a lens that is not corrected in some way for some of the uh, problems that lenses have, some of the distortions that lenses have. Um, He said, but if that's not possible, either throw your camera slightly out of focus or during the exposure, just give it a little tap so that you get a slightly fuzzy image. So he's saying that our human eyes are more capable uh, or less capable, rather, in some ways than than the camera is. Now, what's really interesting is that this book that he produced that said all of this stuff, that you should make platinum prints, that they should be slightly fuzzy, uh, that you should take real world subjects as your thing, uh, this book was a huge success. It was also very controversial. Uh, One critic wrote that its arrival was like a bomb going off at a tea party in terms of the the sort of uh, fascination people had with it. That fascination was so huge, in fact, that it produced a large number of pictures that people began to generically call fuzzy graphs. Fuzzy graphs, because they were all these sort of slightly out of focus pictures. So uh, we've already talked a little bit about this, uh, this work that Emerson did. But here are a couple of examples of this life on the Norfolk Broads, to give you a sense of what it is that he's photographing. And the key thing to remember is that instead of these people being play actors, playing out a role for the camera like we saw in uh, the Ray Lander pictures or the Henry Peach Robinson pictures, these are real people. Real people doing their life's work, you know, walking around and working in their in their fields and you know fishing and gathering reeds and so forth, so forth and so on. So There is this sense that that, uh, uh, these people have a real purpose in life. And for Emerson, that kind of uh, uh, function made the pictures much more honest. So this idea of Emerson's, or these ideas of Emerson's, had a tremendous impact. People began to make pictures that resembled what Emerson's pictures looked like, more and more and more and more of them. And what was interesting about it was, that these folks who were making these pictures really had at the base of their interest the idea that they wanted to advance photography as an art form. And they felt that this strategy was the best method to go about that. And they also felt that a good strategy to follow would be one that had happened way back several hundred years before. If any of you have ever had any art history classes, and I know there are a couple of you who've had art history classes. You, remember, you may remember hearing about salons. A salon was a competitive exhibition. And they were called salons because back in the days when these were done in the world of the painter in the 1500s and 1600s, they would happen in someone's home in their, in their salon, in their rooms. So a salon was a competitive exhibition. And what uh, Emerson advocated was that there should be these competitive exhibitions. And you should get a bunch of photographers' work into the room all at once, and you should have somebody judge them to figure out which one was the best, so that we'd have some idea of what to aim at. What should the target be for our goal of trying to make photography more like an art? And in order to make this even sort of more of a an important deal, they got uh, artists, you know, painters and sculptors and so forth, to judge these salons suggesting that these people would be better at judging what was art, with a capital A, than other people might be. So uh, the salons became super important, and people began to submit to these salons, uh, submit images to these salons, and be judged, and then be ranked according to subject matter, beauty of photograph, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, 1891, Oop, 18, I have 1890, but it's 1891 in my notes. I'm going to say it's 1891, and that's wrong. So 1891, Emerson recants all of his beliefs and says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And he publishes this book called The Death of Naturalistic Photography. It was rimmed in black. And it's very, very much shorter than his first book. And he says, you know, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Uh, Photography isn't an art at all. In fact, it may not be anything more than a minor copying method. You know, all we really do with photography is copy something. And he said, I've seen the work of a great painter. No one's entirely sure who it was. But I've seen the work of a great painter. And he's shown me the way that photography is not an art form at all. I'm sorry. And he's, like, disappears, never to be really heard from much again. Sort of fascinating, right? But in this very brief period of time, Emerson has a marked impact on the world of photography. So uh, with all of that as a sort of prelude, we go to this guy, Alfred Stieglitz. uh, And we talk about his early years. Uh, Stieglitz, you can see his birth and death date there, 1864 to 1946. He was the uh, American son of immigrant German parents. So uh, he was uh, uh, the product of immigrants. And that factors in in some way that we'll talk about here in just a second. He took up photography at a fairly young age, age 17. And uh, his parents, who felt that he wasn't going to get a proper education here in the US, sent him back to Germany to study mechanical engineering. While he was there. He studied photochemistry with somebody who was very famous for some of the advances in photochemistry, a guy named Wilhelm Vogel. And uh, Vogel taught him a ton about the nuances of using the chemical processes in photography to great effect, to making really high quality photographic images. So in 1887, Stieglitz enters one of these salons, the English Photographic Society Salon. And Emerson is the only judge. So Stieglitz enters this competition in 1887. And Emerson's the only judge. And Emerson picks Stieglitz's picture, this one, as the winner. The picture is called A Good Joke. First prize. Now, I'm guessing that you're looking at this picture and saying, wait, wait, wait a second. If I submitted that to a competition, I'd be sacked. You know, I'd be at the end of the line instead of the first in the line. But Emerson said, you know, here's the deal with this picture. It's so honest. It's not made up. It's not posed. There's a group of people, somebody's just told, said something funny. Everybody's laughing. There's this sort of weird, mysterious figure in the background back here. But it's an honest picture and Emerson said in fact it's the only honest picture that's been entered into this competition at all therefore I give it first prize And again it's hard for us to see it as a prize winner but compared to other amateur work of the time Emerson says it's fresh and unposed so when we now continue on and look at a few more of uh, Stieglitz's early photographs again most of these pictures made when he's in his late teens and early 20s, uh, when he is in Europe studying, we begin to see some of the things that are going to carry this photographer through his career. One is mastery over technique. He's really good at this. If anybody's ever tried to make a photograph like this, and this is most of these are pretty poor reproductions, but you'll get the general idea. If you tried to make a photograph with extreme lights and extreme darks, and you want detail in both, you know that it's not that easy to do. But Stieglitz manages to figure out how to do it. He also uh, begins to recognize that the camera as a mobile device, instead of something sitting on a stand, becomes very important. So he begins to handhold cameras where other photographers were always using a tripod or some other stationary stand. So. Uh, he also begins to explore some of the basic things that will follow him throughout his career. A directness of observation, a simplicity of design. The pictures are not usually complex to look at. Tremendous sensitivity to tone. A respect for the photographic print as a work of art. So it kind of brings in that whole art photography thing and doesn't reject it. It sort of enhances it. but And it enhances it through a concern with subject matter because he felt that many amateur photographers just shot whatever happened their way without thinking. About this photograph, The Terminal, Stieglitz said, I saw a driver tenderly caring for his steaming car horses in a snow-covered street. And that came to symbolize for me my own growing awareness that unless what we do is born of sacred feeling, there can be no fulfillment in life. So he's not just making photographs of the way the world feels around him but he's sort of trying to think about ways to elevate the idea of what photography can accomplish through the kinds of pictures that he's making and we have to remember that this is a concept that's fairly new this idea of amateurism and photography because stieglitz isn't in fact somebody who is trying to make a living through photography he is a true amateur in almost every sense of the word a question that we probably should try to answer is how is it that this guy you know ends up taking to photography so well he's young he's gotten some education from this Wilhelm Vogel but that's mostly technical education and how is it that Stieglitz's early pictures are so uh, sort of interesting to look at and have subjects that are really fascinating. And part of it is that his study of engineering back in Germany had proved him to be a very bright student. He was real smart and very quick on the uptake. So he was able to amass technical information, but he also read a lot and understood a lot about uh, the world of literature and the world of poetry and so forth and began to bring that to his photographs. But mostly, it was probably that Stieglitz was a revolutionary sort of a guy. He was a guy who, no matter where he would have landed, and no matter what he would have become interested in, he was going to be an envelope pusher. He was going to try some new things and see what he could do beyond what it was uh, that, uh, that was already established. So when we see a photograph like this of, of a you know, poor street kid in Venice, it's an unidealized view of the subject. There's no romantic haze over the picture. There's no sort of like, you know, sense that this child is play acting the role of a poor child for the camera. Uh, there's an intensity of expression, a directness of eye contact, a directness of the photographs communicating the essential human aspect of the subject matter. And this kind of stuff was relatively unusual in photography at this time. So Stieglitz becomes a a, a sort of early, kind of almost a photo savant in some way, beginning to try things that nobody else had tried. Again, using handheld cameras. When we talk about handheld cameras, it's probably useful to think about them as being like a, a a little bit smaller than maybe half of my lectern. So a handheld camera is a biggish object, but as opposed to something that needed to be set on a tripod and had to be stationary, handheld cameras in uh, Stieglitz's day uh, were not very commonly used. Um, Another thing that Stieglitz did was he often would crop into the photograph. (coughs) Crop into the photograph. Now, cropping is something that we all know about, but if you think about it, Let's think back to the days of the wet plate collodion photographers using these mammoth plates. Right? Think about those guys with their 16 by 20 inch cameras. Are they going to set up and make a photograph that they're going to need to crop to an 11 by 14 later? No. They're going to make every square inch count because they know that when they make the contact print from that big negative, they're going to want every detail that they saw in the original scene. So they're gonna put everything that they want into the frame and not put anything that they don't want into the frame, unless it's absolutely impossible, and then maybe they slice off a half an inch somewhere. But Stieglitz begins to recognize that sometimes because of moving the camera around, he can't instantaneously make a decision to fill up the frame. So he begins to crop, and more importantly, since he's also working with these contact printing processes, because platinum was a contact printing process, so was Photograph Viewer. Because he's working with these processes, he then would need to make an enlarged glass plate positive, using an enlarger, so that he could have a glass plate positive that was a cropped portion of one of his plates, as in, say, say an 8 by 10. And then he'd have to take that glass plate positive and transform it through contact printing to a glass plate negative, from which he could make the print. So, He's thinking through this whole process of how he needs to make the pictures happen technically so this idea this this picture I've, I've always thought of as being very much like an emerson kind of picture even though it's made by stieglitz so here's stieglitz writing in 1899 just before the turn of the century 1899 in the infancy of photography it was generally supposed that every succeeding step was purely mechanical, requiring little or no thought. The result of this was the inevitable one of stamping on every picture thus produced a brand of mechanism, a crude stiffness and vulgarity. And uh, a crude stiffness and vulgarity. Within the last few years, he goes on to say Photographic workers began to realize the possibilities of the medium in which they worked. Lens, camera, plate, developing baths, printing processes, and the like are used by them simply as tools for the celebration of their ideas. Wow, this is a really sort of radical notion. Because he's saying that so far in photography, up until maybe five years before, He wrote this thing in 1899. The only thing that changed in photography was mechanical stuff. The cameras would change. The processes would change. The way the images were made would change. But he says now, just in these last few years, photographers are recognizing that it's the tool that makes the picture possible. And all we're doing is figuring out how to use the tools effectively. All we're doing is trying to figure out how to use the tools effectively for, as he puts it, the celebration of their ideas. Stieglitz is positioning his view of photography as being distinctly different from the technical documentary images that had come before. So it was an art form in his head. He makes a declaration here that says photography isn't just about following the next mechanical trend. It's about using these mechanical tools to our advantage to express ideas ideas Stieglitz returned to New York from Europe in 1890 and he almost immediately became director of the Society of Amateur Photographers of New York he uh because he studied all this mechanical engineering stuff in Germany his father who had made some money in the United States his father tried to set him up in a photo-mechanical reproduction business, I think hoping that Stieglitz's interest in photography and his, his education in, in uh, mechanical engineering would kind of spark some interest in young Stieglitz. And Stieglitz kind of like, we'd go to work some days, and he wouldn't go to work other days. Some days yes, some days no. So he ended up really living on an allowance that his father would give him for a number of years, until his father passed away. And then Stieglitz lived a a somewhat more meager life, but uh, not not one of uh, tremendous poverty in any case. So uh, by 1897, Stieglitz had had an international reputation as a photographer. One critic said this, Mr. Stieglitz is so astoundingly clever that he leaves the critic with nothing to say. He pushes the limits of his craft a shade farther every year, yet always in orthodox ways, and gains his sensation through legitimate effects and fascinating subject. Wow. I want that review, right? Like that would be a good one to clip out and put in my CV, right? You know, but if anybody ever were to review me like that, I would be very pleased. So Stieglitz. I mentioned earlier that you know, he's this guy who's the son of immigrant parents. And because of that, he has sort of a hyper-patriotism. He's very, very interested in being American and showing what America can do, especially because his parents had become relatively well-to-do uh, here in, in America. So he said, we Americans, this is Stieglitz here, we Americans cannot afford to sit still. We have the best of material among us, but it's hidden in many cases. We have to bring it out. We have to start anew with an annual photographic salon to be run along the strictest lines. So Stieglitz, uh, who was then, uh, right around the turn of the century, uh, was elected to the newly formed Camera Club of New York as the director. Stieglitz uh, helped organize the Chicago Salon of 1900. So the Camera Club of New York combined with the Chicago Society of Amateur Photographers and also combined with the Art Institute of Chicago, already well known as one of the country's leading art museums and art schools, to have this show in in, in, uh, 1900, uh, this American Salon. They had 900 entries. They selected 118 to show. And it was what they called the best of the new American school, the new, of the, Mer- the new American school. And so this show was the first step in a kind of wacky thing that happened in, in photography, actually probably one of the hardest parts of, uh, of photography to kind of wrap our heads around in some way. Uh, and that is the photo secession. So Stieglitz said, that uh, the secessionists, in fact, all secessions, and it's better to do a secession than anything else that the new movement in photography can be likened. Secessionists give as the reason of their movement the fact that they can no longer tolerate the set convictions of a body from which they detach themselves, a body which exists on conventions and stereotype formula, a body that checks all spirits of originality instead of encouraging them, a body that refuses its ear to any new doctrine, Such groups give birth to secession. So they decided that they wanted a change. They didn't want photography to keep on going the way it was, or at least they didn't want to be part of a a world of photography that kept on going the way it was. So they decided to literally secede from the medium of photography. They got lawyers, they drew up papers, they delivered the papers to the courts, and they said, we are seceding from photography. And a lot of people kind of went, oh, well, that's a little weird, but that's what they were doing, right? So that's what they were up to. So uh, the objectives of the photo secession were fairly succinct when they established this in uh, 1902, February of 1902. And, you know, you don't really have to write this down, but just sort of get the idea of this. I, I put this on a slide because I used to recite these. And then people would be furiously scribbling away, like trying to figure out what it was that I was saying, because especially the last one is kind of wordy. So remember that all the slides are online, right? So they want to do these three things. They want to advance photography as applied to pictorial expression. They want to draw together those Americans practicing or otherwise interested in the art. And they wanted to hold from time to time, at varying places, exhibitions not necessarily limited to the productions of the photo secessionists or to American work. That's the last one. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because first they say they want to advance photography. And then they say they want to do it with Americans uh, who are doing photography. And then they say they want to hold from time to time at varying places exhibitions. But it doesn't have to be really limited to just their crew. They will bring anybody else in who might agree with them. The barn door is open. Come on in if you think that what we're doing has some value. uh another thing that they did in order to kind of push their idea forward of the kind of photography they thought had value again photography where subject matter was critical technical quality was high but synthetic imagery was not generally seen as being the best right so uh, in addition to putting forth this sort of Screed of what it was that they wanted to do. They also founded a publication that they called Camera Work. It was a quarterly magazine. To call it a magazine is like really not fair because it was really more of a super high quality book published every quarter with very high quality reproductions, really great writing, much more of a journal than a magazine. But it was a, a publication called Camera Work that was intended to let people know what they were doing. 50 issues of this thing were published between 1903 and 1917. Each issue was devoted to one of the members of this group of people who seceded from photography, plus some sort of historical referent. So they would include also work by Julia Margaret Cameron, or Hill and Adamson, uh, or uh, Southworth and Hawes, so that they had some sense of connecting what they were doing to the origins of the media. That was their objective, was that what they were doing was so close to the origins of photography. So uh, much more than a simple magazine, this camera work. They organized some worldwide secessionist exhibitions. And what was interesting is that even though most of the members of the photo secession were from New York City, the majority of the exhibitions were not in New York City. In other words, they wanted to sort of spread the word, spread the gospel of what they were doing out there around the world. Another thing that they did is in 1905, they rented a studio at 291 Fifth Avenue in New York City. um, And they called it the little galleries of the photo secession The question by this time in their minds was not whether photography was an art, but rather what kind of art it should be. what what they wound up with was a group of photographers, who we'll take a look at, and we won't look at all of them because it was a fairly hefty-sized group, but you'll get a sense of what uh, some of these photographers were up to. So we'll look at a few of them, then we'll take a break, and then we'll we'll look at a few more. So, one of them, Gertrude Kasebier, uh, was a New York City portrait photographer, but her idea of a portrait was that it was, in her sense of making portraits, art. She charged a great deal more than other portrait photographers charged in, in New York City uh, because what she was doing was making uh, artistic statements uh, about her subjects. And here is her photograph, her portrait of Alfred Stieglitz. Uh, Kasebeer kind of took to photography uh, almost immediately and Stieglitz really liked independent spirit Uh, she had the ability to frame a figure with tremendous skill grasp a subject telling gesture at the right moment Uh, her photographs tended to have a sense of affirmation rather and optimism not a somber mood Um, and she also tended to explore generally feminist ideas ideas about women in the world and how women fit into the world uh, and sort of posited uh, strong and powerful women figures uh, within the world. Uh, so, intriguingly, the first issue of Camera Work uh, featured her photographs, and I think that that was in part Stieglitz's revolutionary idea was to say, "Here we are; we've seceded from photography, and." Not coincidentally, the first photographer we're going to feature is a woman, uh, something that was a little bit uh, avant-garde already. And probably, Kesebier's most well-known photograph is this one, Blessed Art Thou Among Women, uh, this universal relationship between mother and child, uh, caught in a pose that's both graceful, but also has some strength, The sort of anointing in some ways of the daughter pushing her out the door into the, into the world of, uh, of womanhood. So uh, symbolic images were a big part of this group of photographers' intent. And that's sort of interesting, because if we're talking about pictures that are real, where does stuff like this fit in? So one of the things I'm hoping that you're kind of noticing here is that the pictures may not look like what Stieglitz is saying that they're supposed to look like. Here's another one of these secessionist photographers, Edward Steichen. Steichen and Stieglitz are easy to mix up. Stieglitz is the guy in charge. Steichen is sort of the second in command. He's Stieglitz's best friend. Um, He is uh, perhaps the most important photographer in the photo secession, aside from Stieglitz, uh, and uh, ends up becoming a very important photographer both inside the photo secession and outside of it. Uh, Steichen helped Stieglitz express the organization's ideals. Steichen also had something else that Stieglitz really liked. He had the credentials of an artist, so that he was photographing subjects like Auguste Rodin with his famous sculpture, The Thinker. Steichen had already come to photography with a you know, really good resume already as a painter. He'd already made a lot of paintings, and exhibited them, and been successful with them. So he brought this artistic knowledge into the world of photography. Also like Stieglitz, Steichen had started photography early. He had gotten his first camera at age 16. So he was sort of the ideal photo secessionist, somebody who was kind of almost born with a camera in their hands had this sense of artistic sensibility, and also had a sense of the type of subject matter that might work in the way that might help push photography forward. I do want you to kind of think about these nude figures. uh, I've got two or three of them here. Uh, And in a week's time or so, we'll look at some other nude figures. And I want you to kind of like imagine these when we get there. So kind of tuck these uh, sort of headless, faceless, nude figures back in the back of your head, and we'll kind of come back to them at a later time. Steichen once said, when the shutter clicks, anything else that can be done afterward is not worth consideration. Interesting, right? So he's saying that the post-production aspect of photography isn't that important. And yet, the other thing that happened to to Steichen in his career was that he became pretty well known. He became sought after as a portrait photographer. You'll recall that we've looked at this portrait of J.P. Morgan before. He became pretty uh, sought after as an advertising photographer. And as soon as that happened, Stieglitz kind of like disowned him. Threw him out of the photo secession. Their relationship became strained because Stieglitz felt that Steichen was now tainted by this commercialism that Steichen was more, more interested in. This is a, an okay reproduction of an okay reproduction of a gum bichromate print over platinum. So first, a platinum emulsion, negative contact printed. The photograph processed, washed, and dried. Then that same photograph coated over with gum bichromate emulsion. The negative placed in exact contact on top, exposed again so that color could be added to the image. Steichen was always pushing. The envelope of technology, another thing that he and Stieglitz had in common, including an interest in the autochrome process. The autochrome process. The autochrome process, the first feasible color photographic process, the first one that really could be practiced and done and done over and over again and have some reasonable assurance of success. Invented in France in 1903 by the Lumiere brothers. You've got to love that, right? like the Wright brothers, but the Light brothers. The Light brothers. Right? So they used, and there's a great explanation in the, in the textbook. Uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you look at it in the textbook, because you won't believe me. So here's how this worked. They took a black and white photographic plate. They coated it over on the back side with potato starch grains. Potato starch. Think corn starch, but made out of potato starch. And those potato starch grains were dyed, a third of them orange, a third of them green, a third of them purple. They would then fix those potato starch grains to the plate with a kind of uh, gooey stuff, expose the plate through the back of the plate so that the little potato starch grains acted as filters. They'd reversal process the, the glass plate. And then when it was held up to the light later, those same little glass filters or potato starch filters through the glass. Would act as filters that showed the plate in color. Amazing, but true. Steichen was one of the first people to use this uh, this idea uh, of uh, this autochrome. A uh, couple of his images here. This one of uh, a photograph of George Bernard Shaw. Uh, so uh, this is probably a great spot to take a break because um, we're about a little bit uh, about halfway through here. So we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll find out where we wind up. Another member of this photo secessionist group was this guy, Clarence White. Clarence White, from Ohio. One of the things that's significant about this photo secessionist group was that not everybody was from New York City. Here's it's a New York City guy, who you would expect to have really tremendous connections within the New York amateur photo world. But he really tried hard to gather people from all over America to try to become Uh, a more inclusive group of people. So uh, Clarence White was like one of these guys who's in like an artistic Midas. Almost everything he touched turned into art. He was an interior designer, a landscape painter, uh, he was an architect, uh, and he was a photographer. So he had a tremendous uh, artistic sensibility and you can really see it playing out in his photographs, where we have these wonderful compositions, this beautiful c shaped kind of composition of these two flowing forms coming down from the top uh, right of the frame to the bottom right of the frame, in this beautiful arc uh, in this picture. what shall or this one called the readers this one what shall I say so You can see that the other part of this, in this sort of attempt to kind of photograph real things, they may be real things, but they sort of have a stylized quality to them in some way. Um, So uh, uh, interesting that what we see with with Clarence White is a tremendous ability to balance light and dark values, uh, looking at the way he's composing a lot of these pictures. Uh, But there is also a kind of symbolic uh, symbolist compositional sense here going on, where what we see is a lot of uh, symbolism of, of uh, sort of you know the pipes of Pan, uh, you know is suggesting that this is like you know somebody who's in tune with the forest and so forth, and even his uh, his portraits kind of come off uh, uh, as a as a really interesting kind of. Uh, casual but intense kind of look. I've always liked this image, where he's balanced off uh, this light value of the statue or sculpture at the top left with this massive void of dark. uh, And yet it all sort of seems to fit together. And like Gertrude Casabier, he was relatively unknown until Stieglitz kind of discovered him and brought him to the fore. So um, another one of the secessionist photographers uh, here is Alvin Coburn, Alvin Langdon Coburn. And uh, Coburn, another really interesting uh, uh, photographer from this era. We've looked at this picture before. You may remember talking about it when we were talking about uh, the world of art and the world of, of photography, the world of painting, and the world of photography. And this is another pretty good example of a gum print over platinum. So again, the platinum print underneath, gum print on top, uh, and attempting to add some color to an otherwise monochromatic image. And we can see that the, the, if if I described earlier the idea of the platinum print on the bottom, the whole print is washed and dried and then the emulsion is coated over and the negative placed back in exact registration, what you can see is that the negative doesn't quite get into exact registration. So There is this sort of uh, painterly quality to this. One of the things that I'm hoping you're seeing as we're going along here is that even though it would seem to me that what Stieglitz had said was realism at all cost, no tricks of process other than to extend the tonal range or make the world look more like it really looks. But a lot of these pictures, have that kind of painterly quality, using gum by Chromade. Coburn, along with the rest, even though he's probably among the more straightforward of all of these photographers. Coburn also had ties to the art world. And so he also photographs Auguste Rodin and a number of other artists uh, so that they are uh, part of his body of work. Uh, Coburn also. Somewhat like Stieglitz, although on a on a grander scale, Coburn uh, had a substantial inheritance that allowed him to travel the world uh, the world over and photograph without a whole lot of worry for making money. So uh, amateur photography perhaps as a kind of uh, elitist strategy, so uh, at least in in Coburn's world. Anne Brigman, Brigman was the only member of the photo secession from California. And uh, uh, she had a kind of style of these nature photographs uh, that were based entirely on the nude female figure in the landscape. And what was really interesting about the nude female figure in the landscape in, in uh, uh, Brigman's photographs is that almost always it was her. She would set up the picture, have an assistant who would make the photograph uh, you know, by tripping the shutter her but she'd set up the photograph pose for the photograph and uh, be a sort of part of the image um, and the pictures are uh, often very symbolic they carry with them sort of symbolic titles uh, this one coming up here soul of the blasted pine you know they kind of have this idea of the the nymph in nature in some way stieglitz just thought that this woman was incredibly talented in part because she was so brave. To be photographing herself nude just after the turn of the century and and publishing and exhibiting those photographs uh, was something that was uh, uh, really uh, 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 kind of out there in a way. Um, But her critics suggested that uh, she just worked by formula, that it was always a nude, always in the landscape, and uh, that there wasn't much else there. Robert Demachet uh, Demachet used the gum printing process, that gum bichromate process that we've talked about uh, a, a bit before. And he used that gum bichromate process to make images uh, that had uh, a sort of painterly quality to it. So again, this sort of weirdness of photo secessionist photographers apparently wanting to move away from this, but maybe not always moving away from it. So he's able, with this gum process, to make pictures that have these sort of gestural movements in them where he's stripping away emulsion with his fingertips or the tip of a brush or something else that is giving him that sense, and making these pictures that look very much like charcoal drawings or uh, some other kind of uh, uh, artistic statement that is not necessarily a photograph. So Stieglitz, who had started a movement, opened a gallery, and started a publication, didn't have a ton of time to make photographs during this time period. From 1902, when the photo secession started, until 1917, when the photo secession kind of petered out, the magazine stopped. The gallery had been under different names at different locations uh, and uh eventually uh, became just sort of Stieglitz's gallery. He called it an American place. Uh, But uh, uh, camera work dies out in 1917. The secessionist movement kind of dies out about the same time. And Stieglitz goes back to work as a photographer, begins to photograph again. And uh, when we look at these later pictures, you can see that not a lot has changed. A lot of it's really the same. We're still dealing with a straight photographic approach. He's still photographing primarily out of doors. He's still using natural light, mostly. His portraits are very informal, but very intense. And the pictures are usually kind of fresh and fairly natural. So here is Stieglitz's best known picture. But notice that it comes from about the same time period uh, that, uh, uh, that we're talking about during the photo succession. So. He's made this during the photo secession. So Stieglitz shot this picture in 1907, but didn't realize that it had any significance until 1910, when some friends helped him see that it had intrinsic visual qualities. Thirty five years later, in 1942, he explained the now famous photograph, saying that when he shot it, he had had a spontaneous vision. So here's what he said. There were men, women, and children on the lower level of the steerage. The scene fascinated me. A round straw hat, the funnel leaning left, the stairway leaning right, the white drawbridge, its railings made of chain, white suspenders crossed on the back of a man below, circular iron machinery, a mast that cut into the sky, completing a triangle. I stood spellbound for a while, I saw shapes that related to one another, a picture of shapes. And underlying it, a new vision that held me. So this is what he wrote in 1942 after making a photograph in 1907 that he didn't even realize had value until 1910 when some friends said, this might be a really interesting picture. So first of all, what I just read to you, in my mind, is completely revisionist history, right? He's sort of coming at this and saying, well, here's what it is now that I've had you know, 35 years to think about it, which I think is really pretty fascinating, right? <laughs> so here's what I think it really means. And he had claimed that he'd seen this, gone back to his stateroom on the boat, found his camera, come back, and everything was still the same. Now, regardless of whether Stieglitz is speaking the truth about what he felt about the photograph then or whether he's revising his period of history from his past it doesn't really matter because the picture is unbelievably modern compared to everything that had led up to it before 1907 completely constructed around the edges, nothing in the middle, this sort of set of random things that are happening. I get out my little digit again now that I have a digit I don't, and I don't have my laser pointer like I normally do. I like that it's it's almost like Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Yeah being in class with us. So all of this stuff that's coming in from the edges and the sort of random quality of stuff disappearing off the edges that the camera is arbitrarily doing. And Stieglitz recognizes that this has some tremendous power as a modernist thing, or maybe his friends recognize it. So the significant thing, and I'm just going to give you this little bit again, just so that you can kind of see this and think about what he's saying. There were men, women, and children on the lower level of the steerage. Remember that we talked about this long ago, but you may not recall that the steerage is where the have-nots ride and the other part is where the haves ride in in the ship. So there were men, women, and children on the lower level of the steerage. The scene fascinated me. A round straw hat, the funnel leaning left, the stairway leaning right, the white drawbridge, its railings made of chain, white suspenders crossed on the back of a man below circular iron machinery a mass that cut into the sky completing a triangle i stood spellbound for a while i saw, saw shapes related to one another, one another a picture of shapes and underlying it a new vision that held me so what stieglitz has just done in that statement is he has begun to discuss an image in terms of its compositional structure and in doing that He's established a formalist approach to discussing photography's history that continues to this day. That kind of language is not unlike the kind of language that you encounter in any critique in any class in this department, the kind of language that describes the weight of certain objects, the way certain objects relate to one another, the way shapes are created by those objects in the frame. So Stieglitz is kind of establishing this idea of a formalist approach. But for Stieglitz, I think, the steerage is an epiphany. It's like a kind of revelatory image for him. By 1907, Stieglitz was well-educated. He was also wealthy. He not only had come from pretty well-to-do people, but he also married into money. On board ship, he had become really sick of the atmosphere in first class. He didn't like it at all, Uh, and he also recalled that he wondered when he was on board this ship whether, quote, I should try to put down the seeming new visions that held me. People, the common people, the feeling of release that I was away from the mob called the rich. So, you know, he's spent his lifetime hanging out with artists. And here he is now in nineteen oh seven, with the upper class on a ship bound for probably Europe, and He's looking down at the lower class and sort of imagining, you know, that those are probably his people, as opposed to the, the artists, or the, opposed to the upper cult class people who he's uh, hobnobbing with. So in some ways, I think the photograph suggests a lot about Stieglitz's own emotional world. The view he discovered on his stroll across the deck delivered him into, and also gave him a sense of release from some of the deepest tensions in his life, the picture because of its strong sense of formal design and the presence of the proletariat brought high and low art into momentary relationship. So it's a really interesting picture because it stands on its own as a photograph. It's a really powerful, strong image, both in terms of the title he gave it, but also its formal qualities. But he's also kind of, I think, using it as a sort of springboard to think about where else he's going. Another thing that happened with Stieglitz in his uh, uh, later years is that his gallery began to become a repository not only of the photographic work of the photo secessionist group and others, but it also began to become a way that he explored ex- exhibiting other kinds of artwork. So these are the John Marin paintings that the woman, at the very beginning of class, the woman didn't understand. And Stieglitz kind of you know, gave her a little lip, right? <laughs> So these are the John Marin paintings that, he didn't, that she didn't quite get. Uh, very well-known American painter. Uh, here are some paintings by Marsden Hartley. Uh, Marsden Hartley was in the cultural vanguard, one of a group of artists from the early 20th century that attempted to represent a distinctly American art. They really wanted to create a, a form of art that had no uh, precedent in the European art world. They didn't want to be part of that. And so uh, uh, Marsden Hartley had moved to New York City at the age of 22. He came to Stieglitz's attention, and he became associated with Stieglitz's gallery. Also, Arthur Dove uh, was another artist that Stieglitz uh, exhibited in his gallery. He was one of America's first abstract painters. Right around 1910. Arthur Dove produced what is generally known as the first purely abstract painting to come out of America. Dove's work was based on nature, and he and he referred to his form of abstraction as extraction. Extraction, pulling abstract forms from the landscape. He was also part of Gallery 291. Stieglitz also was the first person in America to show the paintings of Henri Matisse, Stieglitz was the first person in America to show the paintings of Edgar Degas. Stieglitz was the first person in America to show the sculptures of Constantin Brancusi and the paintings and drawings of Pablo Picasso. Stieglitz was a visionary. Stieglitz recognized that these forms of art which had not been seen in America needed to be seen here. He also showed the work of a young woman named Georgia O'Keeffe, whom he eventually married. Stieglitz and O'Keeffe were a blazing romance uh, for a number of years until they kind of never, they never divorced, but they ended up splitting up and Stieglitz stayed in New York and O'Keeffe moved to New Mexico, but he was the first person to show her paintings. And Stieglitz showed these artworks side by side with the members of the photo secessions photographs. So what happened was, people began to recognize that photography and art were the same thing. Photography was art. In a gallery, if you saw a Picasso painting, and a Brancusi sculpture, and a Matisse painting, and a Marin painting, and a Stieglitz photograph, and a Steichen photograph, and a Gertrude Kesebier photograph, all in one room. You began to recognize that these things all had artistic value. It was part of Stieglitz's strategy to help elevate art or elevate photography to an art form. And when we see some of these very late photographs by Stieglitz, again, they have that same kind of simplicity of design, simplicity of composition. They're not generally terribly complex to look at. And in some ways, they're almost very simple pictures but he began to recognize that photography in his mind had a kind of reductive quality some of the portraits that he made later in his life this by the way is john marin uh, the artist i've always loved this portrait of this young woman with this knife toting somebody or other there in the background kind of crazy these portraits kind of seem a little offhand, but they're also very penetrating. What many people said about Stieglitz was that he had a kind of magnetic personality that both pulled you towards him and also pushed you away. People were fascinated by him. They couldn't stand him. They loved him. You know, that there was this sort of weird dichotomy between them. He had a magnetic, hypnotic effect oftentimes on people, especially women and we see it in many of his photographs he made a, an extended and an extraordinary portrait of or series of portraits of georgia o'keefe uh, probably the one true great love in his life And he really understood how to strip away artifice and pretense in a photographic portrait it's another portrait in a way of o'keefe O'Keeffe's hands sewing. Stieglitz also recognized that the New York City of his youth was changing, and he wanted to document that change. He wanted to sort of write a photographic love poem to the city that he knew that was disappearing and being replaced by skyscrapers. So he began photographing old, what he called old and new New York. What's really interesting about the photo secession is that it was a large group of people, but one that was run almost exclusively by one guy, Stieglitz. And rarely are the achievements of a group so much the product of one person's efforts. One person who did all of the busy work of answering the telephones and paying the bills and making sure the lights got turned on and off and so forth and so on but also had the sort of vision. So he was the unchallenged force behind the photo secession, but he was also the guy who provided the day-to-day labor to bring his ideas to fruition. He had tremendously high standards, a huge amount of conviction, and this uh, magnetic personality that I talked about seemed to draw talented artists to his cause, helping him make the photo secession a powerful and very deeply felt influence in the photographic world. Very late in his life, toward the end of his life, Stieglitz began to photograph the clouds and the earth, sort of in proximity, very minimalist photographs that, over time, started to look more and more and more skyward, with very little earth, and in some cases, very, very, like none, none at all. And he said, "My cloud photographs are equivalents." of my most profound life experiences, my basic philosophy of life. In time, he would claim that all of his images were equivalents. And finally, in the very, very end, he said that art, all of it, is an equivalent of the artist's most profound life experience. My Cloud photographs are the equivalents of my most profound life experiences my basic philosophy of life. One of the things that I've always found curious about Stieglitz is that he's this guy who doesn't seem to make any sense. Like, on one hand, he says, this is what I want us to be doing, and on the other hand, he seems to accept all comers, regardless of what the stylistic strategy is. Um, A woman named Nancy Newhall who was the wife of the great photo historian Beaumont Newhall, uh, was writing a, a biography of Stieglitz in 1942. Uh, she was killed suddenly uh, and didn't finish it. But though that biography was published as sort of notes at some point. And in it, she wrote, I put forth the theory that Stieglitz is a dual personality, a great creative genius with the inevitable tendency to destroy others, and a selfless loving leader who wants above all else to cherish, encourage, and protect other talented people. The war between the two is his own tragedy. It's an interesting idea that he's kind of a dualistic personality. He both wants to you know, help everybody, but also wants to kind of in some ways prove his own superiority. In a short span of years, Alfred Stieglitz elevated American photography to a respected international position. After Stieglitz, people knew who American photographers were, even in the place where photography had been invented in Europe. And in the end, Stieglitz recognized that all the arts, not just photography, were all related to one another. Music, poetry, literature, painting, sculpture, photography, all had a kind of common center point. One of my favorite uh, sort of uh, accounts of encountering Alfred Stieglitz is uh, by Ansel Adams. Adams wrote this in his autobiography toward the end of his life. And uh, it talks about here his, his first encounters with, with uh, this great uh, and interesting guy, Stieglitz. So Adams, while in New York, we planned to visit the museums and attend plays and concerts. But my prime goal was to show my photographs to the greatest photographic leader in the world. Alfred Stieglitz, Hans Adams, saying the greatest photographic leader in the world. Right. Within hours of our arrival in New York, I sallied forth with my photographs under my arm to visit Stieglitz at his gallery, an American place. I took the elevator to the 17th floor and with trepidation I pushed open the door of the American place and found no one in sight. It was a beautifully barren room filled with expectant space. Enclosed by walls of an indescribable tone on which a few paintings were hung, thrusting like jewels into the cool light. Four doorless apertures led to other spaces. Light came in from windows looking west and north, and a ceiling trough emitted a blue-white glow. The radiators were knocking, and I could hear a crisp rustle of papers through one of the doorways. I walked through that doorway, and entered a small room with paintings, photographs, books, papers, frames, letters, pens, blotters gumdrops, leaflets, and a telephone. At its center was a small, elderly man, enrobed in a large black cape with silver hair and mustache and tufts of hair bristling out of his ears. His full attention on a book opened before him on the desk. Stieglitz looked up at me with a glower. What do you want? Well, I came to meet you, Mr. Stieglitz, and show you my work. I'm a California photographer. I presented him with a letter of introduction from Mrs. Stern who he's previously explained as a common friend of theirs. He opened it up and read it and said, all this person has got is money. And if this depression keeps on much longer, she's not going to have any of that anyway. What do you want? My sense of chivalry, chivalry toward my dear friend, the enlightened and generous Mrs. Stern was bruised. Stern had been a big benefactor of Adams and had helped him with some of his early efforts to print portfolios and so forth. Uh, I'd just like to show you my prints, I sputtered, hardly hardly able to contain my anger. Come back at 2.30. I stormed out of an American place and pounded up and down Madison Avenue. I met Virginia, Ansel Adams' wife, for lunch and told her I wanted to go back to California. Why should I take this kind of treatment? I had found this first meeting with Stieglitz distasteful and the ambiance of New York in general dreadful. Virginia calmed me down and convinced me to return, stating, after all, what did you come all this way for? So I straggled back to 509 Madison, and as I entered, Stieglitz said, come in, come in. Now let's see what you've got. I gave him my portfolio, and he opened it. It contained a number of small photographs, all recent contact prints, that I felt were my best. He sat on the one and only chair, so I sat on the radiator. He looked at each print with the greatest of care. Each time I started to say something, he would imperatively gesture for silence. He put the prints back in the portfolio, tied up one end, tied up the other end, tied up the front, And then he looked at me. (laughs) And then he untied the portfolio and looked at the photographs again and studied them as carefully as he had the first time. By now, the steam heat was pouring out of the radiator. and I couldn't sit there anymore. My bottom had baked into corrugation. I was extremely (laughs) nervous, but Stieglitz finally spoke. You are always welcome here. He liked my work. He felt that my photographs were what he called straight and seen with sensitivity. Here is a photograph by Ansel Adams of. Alfred Stieglitz. Yeah, that's, that's much better. <laughs> yeah, it seems like... It uh... like <laughs> yeah, that's my so to finish up a little bit with, with Adams, rather than say that Stieglitz influenced me in my work, I would say that he revealed me to myself. Paul Strand's work showed him the potential of photography as an art form, but Stieglitz gave me the confidence that I could express myself through that art form. Stieglitz sometimes brought ideas to people that they did not want to understand. He possessed the very rare quality of spiritual independence. He was an enigma, a crank, an artist, a genius, an editor, a publisher, a dealer in art, a tastemaker, and an influence. He believed that the artist had a right to work with dignity, thinking and doing as he desires. So one of my favorite stories and there's like a legion of stories about this guy but it's one of my favorite stories because it sort of shows how Stieglitz both almost pushed Adams away but then also ended up kind of bringing him in and the two of them had uh, a lifelong friendship after that uh, or at least lifelong until Stieglitz's death um, in the in the 40s so uh, here's a guy who changed the face of photography he changed the way people thought about photography. He changed photography from being something that people thought of as a utilitarian pastime into something that was respected as an art form with every other art form around. It took a while, really, to have that sink in across the world, across all of the other avenues that that uh, needed to happen in. But in our day today, photography is still considered now one of the art forms that every museum needs to collect, every museum needs to show, uh, so forth and so on. So that is class for tonight.